Howdy folks, Rob Noxious, Drunk Noxious, back again. It's been a while. <laughs> Actually, I think the last time I recorded was... October 31st, 2019. <clears throat> or October 28th was the last real long one. It's been about a month. I'm sorry I've been away, but my apartment complex, uh, my neighbor keeps calling bullshit. Like calling every few days or so, making up that I'm smoking or that I'm loud. You know, laughing at a movie is too loud. Or they smell smoke coming from the direction of my apartment. I'm not saying it's him. I'm just saying it's coming from that direction. I haven't been home in about a month. I go home, I have a drink or two, and then I go out to the bar. <clears throat> Because they can't control me there. So why are we here? Well, today, something hit my mind. And, you know, there are people out there who are worried about this Roe v. Wade shit. <clears throat> Mostly because they don't understand... Most people don't understand federal law. And most people don't even understand constitutional law. So I'm going to break it down to you Bobo style. The Constitution, some people say, is straight and clear. The Constitution couldn't be any clearer. <clears throat> Actually, I'm going to go ahead and say it could. By several hundred miles. The framers, Madison especially, intentionally left the Constitution vague in many areas. But I've read it, and it says here, the Congress shall, the Congress should, the Congress shall. It doesn't say will, because will in legalese means must. Shall means mm, maybe, can. It doesn't mean they have to. So let's go through the ambiguities. And to do that, we're going to do a quick run through of the Constitution, just so that we understand where we're talking about. All right, main structure. <clears throat> Preamble, we all know that, we the people. <clears throat> Article 1, the legislative branch. In Article 1, it talks about the Congress, the Senate, as well as various forms and functions. Uh, section 2 is about the House. Section, section 1 is about there is a House and a Senate. Uh, section 3 is about the Senate, but we need to go back to Section 2. Section 2 says, The House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers. Little known fact, there's an ambiguity here. Here's an interesting thing. Did you know that the Speaker of the House doesn't actually have to be a member of the House? It's been floated several times. But it does not say anywhere in the Constitution that the Speaker of the House must be a member of the House. So technically, I could be nominated as Speaker of the House. And if enough people vote for me, 
I could become Speaker of the House, yet never be elected to the House. That's something that has been floated, but never pursued. <clears throat> Section 3, the Senate. Now, there's not much ambiguity with the Senate. But there's an ambiguity slightly in uh, Section 7. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office. Meaning the, the Senate, uh, president's impeached, the Senate can't vote to kill the president. They can only vote to remove them from office. And then after that, once removed from office, the immunity of the presidency is lost and the court system can... Uh, be pursued. The person can be indicted for any crimes committed while president. <clears throat> but it cannot extend further than to remove from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office. So there are two parts of the impeachment uh, Senate trial. Because the impeachment's the indictment, the Senate trial is the actual trial where the actual facts are heard. And uh, the president gets to defend themselves legally. Meaning they have all the right to counsel, all the right to defense, and all the right to call their own witnesses. As well as any evidence which can um, acquit them. Adam Schiff can stand up there and wave his big gavel. And Sondland can say quid pro quo all he wants. But that's just the indictment. When it goes to the Senate, Trump can go out there with every bit of evidence that will defend him, that will exonerate him. And Adam Schiff can do Jack Schiff in the Senate on that part. And the president is allowed full protection in that impeachment, uh, what's known as the Senate jury trial. Once those facts are heard, the evidence is weighed by the members of the jury, the members of the United States Senate, <clears throat> and presiding as judge over the case will be the Chief Justice. But the ambiguity here, the interesting ambiguity, is that President Trump could be removed from office by the Senate, but not disqualified from holding office, meaning he could just run and get reelected. So he could be impeached, removed from office, and then win reelection. And some people don't understand that because removal from office is just one of two punishments that a president can receive. And both have to have separate votes. So the president could be removed from office but not disqualified from holding office again. So Trump could feasibly run for office again. If he's removed from office, he could run for office again. And if the people vote for him, there's nothing you can do about that. That's the constitutional law. And you may say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's because they're not telling you the law. Because most people on the news networks have no idea what they're talking about. I'm reading it right here. Removal from office and disqualification. You have to vote both. And doesn't mean removal and disqualified. It means removal. And then you have to hold another vote to disqualify. If you can't get enough votes for removal, then that's the end of that. That's an acquittal. 
But if you remove him from office, then Mike Pence takes over. But then Pence could just say, I'm running as the vice presidential candidate for Donald Trump for president in 2020. And then Trump wins in 2020. And they can't do shit about it unless they also vote to disqualify. And if you disagree, that's fine. I'm not asking for you to disagree or agree. I'm telling you the law. <clears throat> and then the rest of it, there's not much ambiguity. Uh, it's mostly just what Congress can or can't do. Uh, the limiting powers. Article 2, executive. This is where the big ambiguity is. If we were to follow the law of Article 2, uh, no president today could do anything that they do. Uh, most people originally understood that if it wasn't mentioned in the Constitution, then it can't be done. Um, Article 2 is extremely vague. It basically means the president can do anything that he is not expressly told by the Constitution he can't do. <clears throat> So if the Constitution says he can't do it, he can't do it. If the Constitution doesn't say whether he can or can't, he can. Well, we'll go to court over that. Okay, well then go to court. But if it doesn't say he can't, it means he can. Article 3 is the judiciary. There's no mention of any of this nonsense where the Supreme Court can determine the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of a law. Judicial review is made up. <clears throat> It's not in the Constitution. It was an agreement between the three branches. Article 4, state relations. This is where it gets somewhat vague, but the full faith and credit is understood. Full faith and credit is the big one of Article 4, that the states have... So if I get married in Florida, Georgia has to recognize that marriage. So if I move from Florida to Georgia the state of Georgia has to acknowledge that I got married in Florida. That's how gay, uh, gay marriage works. Um, if you get married in Delaware, a gay marriage in Delaware, it has to be recognized by the state of Georgia. Article 5 is the amendment article. Article 6 is debts. And Article 7 is the ratification clause. So, what about nullification? And that's a big question. Nullification, what is it? Nullification is the idea by Clay and, um, oh, what's his name? South Carolina had been very uh, damaged economically by federal tariffs. And so the John C. Calhoun, who was the vice president at the time, and Henry Clay, who was also from South Carolina, went after what was known as the Ordinance of Nullification. That is, if the Supreme Court has this power that's not mentioned in the Constitution, of declaring whether something is constitutional or not, does a state have the same judicial review? Now, in light of abortion, some people say, no, a state can't ignore a Supreme Court ruling. But the Supreme Court says that federal laws are superior to state law. 
So you could say all you want that marijuana is legal in the state of Colorado, but at the federal level, marijuana is illegal. You could say all you want that I have a sanctuary city and I can tell ICE they can't abduct. Really, it's, uh, you know, apprehend, not abduct, but they use the word abduct because it's PR. ICE can't apprehend any illegal immigrant outside a courthouse. And the federal government can say, uh, Marbury versus Madison, which gives judicial review, the power. And then on top of that, what is the name of that? Um, oh, I had it in my head just a minute ago. <clears throat> yeah, the supremacy clause, but the point is, what was the McCulloch versus Maryland and McCulloch v. Maryland. This is a very seminal court case. McCulloch v. Maryland states very specifically Maryland, the state of Maryland had tried to stop an operation of what was called the second bank of the United States. What is the second bank of the United States? Today, we would call it the Federal Reserve. Somewhat, they perform similar functions. Somewhat, the Federal Reserve is not the second bank of the United States. The second bank of the United States was an actual chartered bank under the charter, a federal charter. The Federal Reserve is a quasi-independent government agency that doesn't actually handle the money of the treasury. It actually doesn't store the money of the treasury. The treasury stores the money in banks in the area surrounding D.C. <clears throat> but they both provide the same basic function, which is a monetary and fiscal element of the government. It was an actual bank of the United States. It was destroyed by Andrew Jackson, who felt that the United States should not have a bank. We never did build another bank. We have a reserve. And what the Federal Reserve's power is, is to hold money in reserve or to control other bank lending through the idea of fiscal policy, that the Federal Reserve will set a lending rate. <clears throat> they don't actually control the fiscal supply of money in the United States. What they do is control the interest rate at which that money goes from the states to the feds or the individuals to the states or to even to the feds. Whenever an individual or a state exchanges money with the government of the United States, the federal government, this interest rate will affect them. And when the Federal Reserve banks across the country who are working with private lending or state lending set their interest rates to a certain level, every bank follows suit, mainly because no bank wants to be outcompeted by the federal government. So just imagine that a bank in Missouri says, you know what, the federal government says I want a 1.3% uh, interest rate. I want 7%. <clears throat> I want, you know, I want to get a dollar. I want to get an extra dollar. So that bank goes to 7%. And nobody goes to that bank because they could go to any other bank 
which has set their interest rate to 1.3, which is what the feds are at. Because no one wants to be undercut in a loan. They, they all want that loan. They all want someone to take out money uh, in a loan deposit or a deposit guaranteed loan uh, via collateral, etc. So if they set it at 7 and the federal government's at 1.3, someone could eventually maybe even go to a, a state bank that's federally aligned and they would miss out on the loan, and loan is revenue. This caused consternation in the early days of the Federal Reserve after the Internal Revenue Service Act that created the IRS as well as the income tax, but has largely been a non-issue. Uh, banks always ask for the Federal Reserve to increase interest rates so that they can make money, but the Federal Reserve is the ultimate decision. And when the state of Maryland told the Second Bank of the United States that they couldn't do this, uh, control the monetary supply, the Supreme Court ruled that, in fact, the Feds could. And so Maryland learned very quickly, and the whole country learned very quickly, that the federal government will do as it wishes, so long as they don't encroach on the rights of the states, they can do whatever they want. Thus declaring that, that the federal government is superior. <clears throat> Hold on. And then there's one last one, which McCulloch v. Maryland is the monetary side. This is what is known as the actual line of jurisdiction. Gibbons versus Ogden. <clears throat> which concerns the Commerce Clause. McCulloch v. Maryland deals with the Supremacy Clause, that the U.S. federal government can create law that is supreme, that has supremacy over state law. This deals with the Commerce Clause, that the federal government can run roughshod over a state's sovereignty if a company of that state is appropriating commerce across state lines. Long story short, the legislature of New York in 1808 granted to a man by the name of Robert Livingston and Fulton uh, exclusive navigation privileges of all the waters within the jurisdiction of that, that state. Basically building ferries, uh, uh, boats for commerce, etc. <clears throat> the problem is A guy by the name of Thomas Gib Gibbons tried to enter into an agreement with Ogden, Aaron Ogden, who had uh, a governor of New Jersey, who had purchased a license from Livingston and Fulton and enters into business with Thomas Gibson. But the partnership collapses. So it ends. Gibbons from Georgia 
decides he's going to go uh, with another uh, company, another steamboat, and use the same route from Elizabethtown, New Jersey, and New York City. Uh, and this had been licensed by the United States Congress under a 793 law of regulating coastal trade. <clears throat> they both went to court because Ogden doesn't want Gibbons encroaching on his, what is essentially a monopoly. He doesn't want Gibbons coming into his territory. Gibbons is from Georgia. And what Gibbons is trying to do is come from Savannah or Augusta and ship north into New, into New Jersey and New York and sell his wares directly up north where a lot of wealth is. And Ogden doesn't like this because he's not making any money off of this guy coming into his territory. The problem is, and here's the big problem. <clears throat> Gibbons is in Georgia. And Ogden is in New York. So this rules supremacy clause and interstate commerce clause. Gibbons actually has to pay the federal government tax to go between state lines. However, he doesn't have to pay the tax to go into New York. And that's what was the, at issue. Gibbons didn't want to be doubly taxed from New York and from the federal government. <clears throat> Gibbons wins in this case. However, his win is not a total victory because ultimately Gibbons has now opened Pandora's box, meaning that now the federal government's commerce clause is legitimized. The federal government can say any commerce between states can be regulated by the federal government. What New York was trying to do was stay out of the government's crosshairs and not incur federal taxes on interstate trade. They were worried that the federal government starts taxing people at my border, you know, at a port of authority, that that's a double tax and that eventually... That means that people would stop using my port. Why would I want to pay federal tax and then state tax on something coming into my state? I'd rather just pay the state tax. The problem is, is that Ogden didn't think it through. He thought he'd get Gibbons thrown out of court because... I don't even know what his argument would have been. But the point is here is that in Gibbons versus Ogden, the same thing happened with McCulloch versus Maryland. The federal government law, it reigned supreme. So... To jettison past that long introduction so that you have a context, nullification is the idea that if a state doesn't think a federal law is constitutional, it can use the same powers as the Supreme Court and just declare it unconstitutional and then pass a law in their state that bans the enforcement of that federal law. Sanctuary cities, marijuana, and abortion. These are the three things that are challenging federal understanding, federal precedent in the form of abortion, that a state can challenge the U.S. Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution. Do we have to listen to the Supreme Court? No, we don't. Andrew Jackson proved you don't have to. 
Andrew Jackson ignored a direct order from the Supreme Court. To this day, that order is unenforced. <clears throat> this That was 1827. It's been unenforced for over 190 years. 192. What's the Supreme Court going to do about it? So, you need to remember that the states can buck federal law. A state can say to the feds, we're not going to capture illegal immigrants and hand them over to you to be deported. That's a violation of federal law. But that's the big question. Can a state nullify federal law? And that nullification crisis that happened during the presidency of Andrew Jackson was largely a trial run of what would happen in 1860, the secession crisis, or civil war, or the war of northern aggression, or as I like to call it, the armed insurrection of the southern states, or armed rebellion of the southern states. The southern states rebelled, from my point of view. But that begs the question, can states rebel? And the answer is yeah. Can they nullify? Yeah. It's up to the executive, the president, to enforce the law. Thank you for listening. And I know I just ended it. Howdy, folks. I'm adding an addendum. Howdy, folks. Rob addendum, drunk addendum. I um, gave this to someone and they said that you kind of left out the ending. So, this is the director's cut. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the Drunk Noxious Director's Cut. Brought to you by Hostess. <clears throat> if Colorado... can nullify federal drug law in regards to marijuana sales and get away with it. That ultimately means that Kentucky, if they had enough support in the state house, could override the Supreme Court's ruling on gay marriage. But it also means that California, if the Supreme Court were to rule Roe v. Wade, overturn it, and ban abortion. It means that California, which there's enough strength in California and New York and other large states, that could effectively ignore the Supreme Court. <clears throat> if Colorado can ignore federal law on weed, then California can ignore the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. It can ignore it on abortion. Nothing's set in stone. The reason people don't talk about this is because that's your last resort. You're talking about ignoring precedent, about ignoring the supremacy of the Supreme Court. If the more conservative Supreme Court put in place by Donald Trump were to overturn Roe v. Wade, California and New York could easily 
ignore those rulings because ultimately the Supreme Court has no effective method of enforcing <clears throat> its decisions. The Supreme Court is reliant on Congress and the President, especially the President, in enforcing its rulings. The President is the enforcer of law. So if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, yes, in Texas, abortion would be illegal. But you could go to California, get an abortion, and come back to Texas. And although Texas could punish you for doing that, that's already been ruled invalid and unconstitutional. What you do in another state, you cannot be punished for in another state. Unless it's what is known as one of those capital crimes. Or a serious crime. Now, is abortion a serious crime? It's been legal since 1981 in most states. Following the 1973 ruling, uh, Roe v. Wade. <clears throat> but ultimately, the states aren't beholden to follow any law. And neither is a person. So just a reminder that even if Gorsuch and Kavanaugh side with the right and ban abortion, California and New York could just tell the Supreme Court, not listening, and still allow it in their states and make it a protected status. And the best the Supreme Court could do is say, hey, you can't do that. And then California would say, make me. So, all of you on the left who are worried about abortion being banned all the country, I'm telling you, the Supreme Court knows if they overturn Roe v. Wade, there are about 12 states in the Union who would blatantly ignore the ruling. Just outright ignore it. So, while the Supreme Court may, quote-unquote, ban abortion... About 12 states would ignore the shit out of that ruling. Just ignore it. Okay, you say abortion is not protected by the Constitution? Well, it's not protected by the federal Constitution, but it's protected by the state Constitution because the Tenth Amendment states very specifically those rights not delegated to the federal government are given to the people and the states. And the same thing with the Ninth Amendment. Those rights not listed herein are delegated to the states. So the state of California is well within its privilege to allow abortion within its borders. Because if the federal constitution doesn't protect abortion, the Californian constitution protects abortion. Which is why the United States of America is superior to Europe. Because although you could ban abortion in France, the European Union could overturn that because of the way things work within the European Union. But in America, if California says abortion's protected in California, then there's nothing the Supreme Court of the United States can do about that. Because the Supreme Court of the United States is the Supreme Court of the federal government of the United States, not the Supreme Court of California. <clears throat>